Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, October 20th. We begin with news that the number of COVID-19 cases worldwide has now surpassed 40 million. We look into how Canada is doing in the fight against the coronavirus compared to other countries across the globe. We'll speak with physician and vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Next, we catch up with Mercedes Stevenson, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We get details on Monday's emergency debate at the House of Commons over the continued violence in Nova Scotia over Indigenous fishing rights. Then we look at a new study from the Fraser Institute on carbon taxes implemented around the world in 31 different countries. We'll get details on the findings, which points to poorly designed models among many of the particularly high-income countries. And finally, the award-winning global news podcast Crime Beat is back with a third season. We speak with Crime Beat host and creator Nancy Hickst on what fans can expect from the new season. 709 on the morning news. Canada surpassed 200,000 confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus on Monday, marking a grim milestone for the country. At the same time, the total number of cases across the globe has now surpassed 40 million. With a summary and details on how we're doing in the fight against COVID-19, we are joined by Toronto physician and vaccine researcher, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Good morning to you, doctor. Well, good morning, Andrew. Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, The number 200,000 seems staggering, but I I, I guess you have to have some sort of a measure as far as just how staggering that is comparing to other countries. So like-sized countries, how do we stack up? So true. If you take a look at countries like France, Spain, Sweden, Italy, the UK, we're doing way better in terms of the number of deaths per million. Mm -hmm. I invite people to take a look at a, a website called Worldometer. You can see exactly how we're doing, how many tests we're doing. Compared to the U.S., we're just, it's incredible. Like, we're stars because they have two and a half times the number of deaths per million that Canada has, despite doing almost twice the number of tests that we've done. So I think the differences in these countries are we've done a good job getting test results to people quickly. That's definitely a big part of the key because in the U.S., it can take up to a week to get results. Here we're getting results to people usually within a day or two. It can take up to four days, but generally speaking, it's fast. Doctor, we've certainly seen a spike in cases as the kids have gone back to school, not terribly unexpected. Are we are we really having a fear of a second wave across the country? I know, you know, in BC they've announced they're into a second wave. Here in Alberta, our our officials say no. Is that a fear we should be thinking about as we look forward? A fear, I don't know if fear is the right word. I think it's an expectation that we'll have a second wave. Remember, the word from the get-go was not stopping the disease. It was mitigating the disease. So the whole purpose of all of this was not, we didn't think we'd be able to get the deaths down to zero or get the number of cases down to zero. What we hope to do and what we are continuing to do is mitigate the disease, lessen it with all these measures so that we don't overwhelm our very very low hospital bed ratio. So Canada ranks number 11 out of 12 countries in terms of how many acute beds we have per population. So we've got to be very careful. We can easily overwhelm our system. So the key is to mitigate, and that's still what we're doing now. 
Dr. Garfinkel, it's not uh, yeah, obviously it, it's due to healthcare professionals like you who help to care for those people battling COVID nineteen. But when you, when it comes down to the public with the social distancing, the hand sani, the masks, many many countries who well, have access to the exact same uh, products we have. So what's the difference here as far as uh, how how well we're doing, if you will? Is that government implementation and uh, regulation, or, or who do we credit to this? I think our public health officials, I think our population is willing to think more as a whole community as opposed to an individual. I think we're less likely to conflate politics with science. Mm -hmm. And I think when those two become conflated, it becomes a serious problem. You know, this is this is more of a question of scientific fact and validity. What are the medical facts? What do the epidemiologists tell us? It's interesting. It's not like we're the star of the world in this. You recognize that South Korea reigns supreme. Actually, they have 30 times less the number of deaths than we do here in Canada. But they also have a super stringent contact tracing, a super stringent mask and social distancing and the travel restrictions. And what, like, well, to be fair, their travel restrictions have been lost. But the fact is they have 1,000% buy-in on their, on their population. Mm-hmm. Makes a difference, doesn't it? So, you know, on that note, in terms of a vaccine, I know that's something that you're, you know, very much you've participated in vaccine in investigations and, and uh, trials, et cetera, over the years. How are we faring, uh, you know, as we as we all, the world, rushes towards a vaccine for coronavirus? Well, it's interesting. Canada is playing it very smart. What we've done is we've invested $1 billion into six different potential vaccine candidates. And guess what? All of them have the funding from U.S. Operation Warp Speed. So in a way, we're piggybacking on their financial investment. The money, to be fair, is not refundable if the trials fail. But that said, we also are investing additional funds into six Canadian-generated ideas for vaccines. All the vaccines work in different ways. So we've really... uh, invested in this, and we hope that at least one, maybe two, will come out. So the more mechanisms we have of the vaccines, the more higher the likelihood that we'll have some success in that realm. Dr. Gorfinkel, it's time to look into your crystal ball. <laughs> and I know any yeah. nobody has the exact answer, but realistically, when do you think we, we could see a workable vaccine? The way it works is this. The longer we wait, the better the data will be. And there's simply no getting around that. If we're to have a vaccine very, very soon, we will not know about long-term side effects, period. We will not know how long the immunity lasts, period. What we'll have is what's called serological data. We'll have data based on antibodies, and it'll be based less on actual cases. So the best trials will tell you, are people getting less sick after getting the vaccine or not? Not just do they have antibodies, because what we know about antibodies is that they can be very short-lived. So that's a serious problem with relying purely on serological data. The best trials will look at how many people are getting sick after getting the vaccine versus getting the placebo. And moreover, to understand long-term side effects, there's only one way you're going to know it, and that's by following a vaccine long-term. There's only one way you're going to know about long-term um, it's so you have durability and you have long-term side effects and, and those things you, you have to follow long-term to understand. 
Doctor, super quick answer if you can. How do you feel about Halloween? Should we go ahead with it? <laughs> I kind of like Teresa Tam's attitude. I think we can do it as long as we do it right. You know, so basically, standard masks are kind of out. The COVID cloth masks are in. Outdoors is, of course, out. Oh, sorry. Outdoors is in. <laughs> indoors is out. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, we want that extra high feeling in the stars above us, you know, to, so that we don't spread the virus. And, you know, making sure that if you are going trick-or-treating, you clean the candy wrappers when you sanitize your hands. Giving out candy with tongs is probably a good idea. Now, if the numbers are really high, as they are in Toronto, and you've read that, you know, here they called it off, we'll have to find other ways to celebrate. These are big epidemiological questions, and I do trust in the public health officials to say that, wait a second, maybe the cost is too great. We'll have to celebrate another way, and that's okay, too. Good stuff. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Doctor. Many thanks. It's a pleasure. That is Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, Toronto physician and vaccine researcher. 610 on the morning news, uh, the continuing battle in the East Coast lobster industry, the latest on the dispute in Nova Scotia, and the increasing numbers of COVID-19 right across the nation. Lots of ground to cover this week with Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, listen, this is, uh, you know, a, a crazy time, particularly out west, because you, you hear about this and we have seen the images, heard bits and pieces. And then the emergency debate at the House of Commons led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday. What is at the center of this dispute, Mercedes? So what your listeners have probably been seeing and we've been talking about a lot on the news and on the show is the dispute between the commercial fishermen in Nova Scotia and the Mi'kmaq indigenous fishermen. Uh, They both are fishing for lobsters. It started with sort of boats kind of facing off in the water and people yelling at each other about who had the right to fish there. It escalated all the way to a lobster pound being burned to the ground with live lobsters in it over the weekend. And obviously, uh, you know, the the escalating violence, the escalating property damage uh, led to fears. Uh, and, and, you know, Mark Miller, the uh, federal minister for Indigenous Affairs, said somebody is going to die. If it keeps going like this, it's getting very, very dangerous. Uh, the RCMP had not really intervened, and they'd been the subject of a lot of criticism because that Bill Blair told us on the show uh, on Sunday morning when he came in to talk to us that the issue was they didn't have enough folks on the ground. But what we're hearing from Perry Bellegarde, uh, the national chief for the Assembly of First Nations and from the NDP and from others um, is that part of what's at stake here is the definition of the right to make a quote-unquote moderate living. This was a concept that was established in a Supreme Court ruling back in 1999 saying that Indigenous Canadians have the right to hunt or fish to make a moderate living. The commercial fishermen are saying uh, this is not a moderate living. They're breaking rules. They can't do it. Uh, The government and the Mi'kmaq are saying this is within their rights. Uh, that moderate living clause, he believes they have the right to issue fishing permits. Uh, they've been doing so in a sustainable way, that those decisions are up to the chief, uh, and that that means that they can fish at times that commercial lobster fishermen can't. They also are taking a much smaller percentage of the stocks, which is something we heard last night in the House of Commons. Uh, you know, Liberal politicians disputed the notion from commercial fishermen that this is about depleting the lobster stocks. They said the indigenous fishermen in this area are fishing less than 1% uh, of the lobsters 
very, very tense situation. Uh, nothing really came out of that emergency debate last night that was new. That's not particularly surprising. But certainly the opposition and Indigenous leaders are telling the government they expect them to make sure the police are doing more and that it's time to define this concept that has now been unclear for 21 years under the law. Uh, so that this is not something that spreads across the country to other areas where Indigenous people have the right to a moderate living. Be clear, what does it mean, and then enforce the law. Is that what the issue really is, Mercedes? Is this that the fact that this has been an ongoing dispute for many years? It's just really boiled over because you're right. I've been reading about it. It sounds like they've got, you know, the indigenous fishermen have what about 350 traps. So really nothing that, you know, compares to the the non-indigenous fishers. What what kind of numbers of traps they have? So this is this sound like this is just something that's been coming and it's it's now here and it, a decision has to be made. Well, you know, we've been watching it for weeks escalate, and I, I have no doubt that this is something that started long before it was on our radar here in Ottawa. Uh, we kind of were saying it's, Ottawa won't say anything, and I can tell you, we tried to interview or clip the minister, Bernadette Jordan, for fisheries for weeks, and, and she wouldn't talk to us, she wouldn't talk to any media, uh, she wouldn't get involved. So there's a lot of criticism on her file right now for why the minister didn't get more involved before things escalated to this level. Uh, obviously, there are concerns about other factors here, like racism. If you're talking about a few hundred lobster traps, is burning someone's lobster pound to the ground really about concern mm -hmm. that they're going to devastate the stock? Right. Uh, there's concerns about the other factors that are here, but obviously right now, this is a community that is in a lot of pain and uh, the They've, they've got to find a way forward between the federal and provincial governments and, and the Mi'kmaq First Nation there. And the chief himself, uh, Chief Sack, has been physically assaulted during this process. Incredible. Let's switch gears and uh, talk about COVID-19. The numbers have increased across the nation. And you had the chance to talk to the Minister of Small Business, Mary Ng, about the second wave and uh, forced business closures and federal government aid perhaps on the way. What are you hearing? What sorts of uh, packages are the government considering rolling out to help these businesses that have been battered big time ahead of the second wave even? So it looks like basically the programs that they were planning to announce are in place. Keep in mind it's Small Business Week. Yeah. So sometimes they like to announce things during, you know, that kind of a themed week. But we don't any sense that there's something big coming down the pipe from the minister. Essentially what they've done is revamped some of the programs from earlier in the year, including things like the commercial rent subsidy, which wasn't very well designed the first time around because uh, it was up to landlords to decide whether or not they wanted to accept it, which didn't help a lot of small business. Uh, if your landlord Lord said, no, you, you had no choice. You were just out on the street. Um, so now it's actually up to small businesses to apply for that. But still a gap between September when the old program uh, ended and when this new one is kicking in in October. It will be retroactive, but that's not particularly helpful uh, if you had to pay your bills between September and October at some point. Um, so they, they are bringing that out. They have extended the wage subsidy, uh, which has been a, a real lifesaver for a lot of businesses to be able to keep some of their employees on. Um, so they do have programs that are out there, including business loans, and they've tried to make them more accessible um, and and more business friendly and for a longer period of time. But what we were hearing from the Canadian Federation for Independent Business is that they want more than that. And they want some of the provinces to step up too. Because if a business is shut down, it still has certain fixed costs no matter what. And if it's been
restrictions. What CFIB is arguing for, which is funny because they, they've always said very clearly they're against business subsidies, but because this would be a government mandated shutdown and not a reflection of a business's abilities, they believe businesses' cost should essentially be 100% covered so that they're able to hold on. Some are just really by the skin of their teeth right now and having to pay any expenses after months of lost income and now in Ontario and, and Quebec for many businesses, another month of no income, um, that can just be devastating for them. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Mercedes. Pleasure to have you as always. Thank you for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block, which of course we re-air Sundays at 11 a.m. here on 770 CHQR. It's 8.12 and carbon taxes in high-income countries around the world are poorly designed, according to a new study released today by the Fraser Institute. So we're getting details from Associate Director of Natural Resource Studies at the Fraser Institute this morning, Elmira Ali-Akbari. Good morning good to you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Elmira, so this study, it's based on 31 countries. Can you break down a little bit of the information that the study was after, please? Sure. Um, you know, it's widely acknowledged that uh, carbon pricing is the most efficient way to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and address uh, climate change. Uh, however, some key conditions must be met uh, for carbon pricing to be efficient, or in other words, for carbon pricing to deliver emissions reductions in a cost-effective way. The first condition is something we call a revenue neutrality, and that means that all the revenues from uh, carbon pricing should be used to reduce other costly taxes uh, in the system, such as reducing uh, business or personal income tax rates. And the second condition, which is also related to the first one, is that governments should avoid uh, subsidizing substitutes for carbon-emitting uh, activities, such as subsidizing, for instance, wind and solar energy sources, because by subsidizing those sources, governments are going to increase the cost of reducing emissions, and they're just going to defeat the whole purpose of um, having carbon pricing, which is basically allowing the market and prices to determine the right uh, substitutes. And the third condition is that the introduction of carbon pricing should trigger the repeal of uh, existing and corresponding uh, emissions-related regulations. So in our study, um, we examined existing carbon pricing uh, policies in 31 high-income OECD countries uh, to determine whether these existing systems uh, meet the key conditions of a well-designed carbon uh, pricing policy. And we found that no country has implemented uh, a well-designed carbon pricing policy. And more specifically, no country is using all the revenues from carbon pricing to reduce other costly taxes in the system, which, you know, again, um, reducing those taxes can help with improving economic growth. Um, we found that uh, on average, 74% um, of uh, carbon tax revenues in uh, 14 uh, countries um, that uh, are using basic or having uh, carbon taxes are used simply as 
um, general revenues for the government. Um, only uh, 14% of the carbon tax revenues, uh, again, on average, were returned to uh, taxpayers. So um, this suggests that um, existing carbon taxes uh, are mainly used as a revenue-raising tool for government's rather than a mechanism to reduce mm. uh, emissions in the most uh, affordable way possible. Uh, we also found that um, no country that introduced uh, carbon pricing has uh, repealed the existing and corresponding uh, GHG-related uh, regulations. In fact, most countries have done the opposite, and they have introduced even m- new regulations following the uh, introduction of uh, carbon pricing. Uh, for example, emission caps or regulations to phase out coal-fired power plants or mandated um, basically clean fuel standards. Those are just some examples of these uh, regulations that uh, undermine uh, the cost-effectiveness of uh, carbon pricing policies. Very interesting stuff, and I like how you uh, broke it down for us because uh, I think people in opposition have said the same thing time and time again, going into general revenue. So uh, we appreciate your insight and uh, the details on the study, Almara. Thank you. Thanks uh, for your interest. We appreciate it. That is Almira Ali-Akbari, Associate Director, Natural Resource Studies at the Fraser Institute. The award-winning global news podcast Crime Beat is back with a third season. Join crime reporter Nancy Hicks as she takes you behind the scenes of some of Canada's most high-profile cases. And joining us this morning to talk about season three is Nancy Hicks. Hi, how are you? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. I can't believe it. Boy, since you launched in 2019, more than 6.2 million downloads, 11 million views on YouTube. It's now on TV. Did you even ever think this would be your full-time gig when you started? You know, I am so grateful for the support. I had no idea. You know, I just knew that I had so many stories that I wanted to share. You know, there's so much more to a lot of these cases than we can share in a two-minute television news story. So um, when I got this opportunity to be able to create the podcast, it's just, uh, it's been a great experience and it's allowing me to give a voice to so many families. So I'm grateful to them. I'm grateful to everyone who's been listening. So thank you. Nancy, what's really interesting, and here's a personal story. I've got a guy doing some tile work in my bathroom right now. We started talking about media and podcasts, and he said, you know, my favorite, I'm, I'm listening to, and I've, I've seen as many as I can of the Nancy Hickst podcast. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you mean Crime Beat. He, all over it, I told him he had a new season. He's very excited. So I'm wondering uh, if whether or not you're Dave the Tile Guy or anybody for that matter, what is it that makes us connect to these sorts of stories? You know, I think because nobody expects that they would be in any kind of a a situation where they become a victim of crime. So these stories are like, I purposely write them so that you, anyone can relate to them because these things could, it could happen to you. Nobody, nobody knows when this would happen. So um, these are just your everyday Joes who fall victim um, by no fault of their own. And so I think by sharing these from a victim's uh, perspective. You can really relate to these people. Um, and, you know, a lot of people ask why women specifically a lot of times turn to true crime. And it is because I think women have it in their nature to try to prepare. And so by listening to these cases, watching these cases, mm. 
Hmm. They'll try to put themselves into those positions and uh, think, okay, well, if I was in that situation, what would I do? So, you know, I talk, I talk about this a lot with my producer, Dila Velasquez. And uh, yeah, this is a conversation we've had quite a bit. Um, So, you know, my goal is at the end of a podcast episode that you would feel like you got to know these victims and their families and, and you can really empathize and sympathize and, and feel the impact of these crimes, which is, really what it's about it's not about you know glorifying these horrific crimes it's about making these victims real and and understanding who they were um, and their experiences so you've launched the first podcast of season three launched last night tell us about this give us a little taste of of what's to come in this episode but in the ones coming forward too you know this first episode shares a case that most people can relate to because it's about two neighbors they met for the first time on a sunny sunny spring afternoon and they decided to get together for a barbecue later that night just hours later the night took a dark turn and it's a case that's going to leave you questioning what horrors you can encounter just two doors down Wow! Yeah, no. I, I now Andy's rethinking the, his barbecue. Back, yeah, this seriously, going to cancel that thing for sure. Um, <laughs> let's talk about you know for those people familiar with the podcast, uh, YouTube and uh, Crime Beat TV. Tell us about that and, and how that works out. So Crime Beat TV is based on the podcast. So, but we're involving other reporters as well. So. Pretty much every other week, you will get a case from me, and I will share a story that I've personally covered. And then on the off weeks, you will hear a case that's uh, covered by one of my global colleagues. Um, This coming Saturday night, you should tune in because there will be an update to uh, a 1984 cold case murder of Christine Jessup. And they're planning to update that case, which is a case that we covered in the first season of Crime Beat TV, and now they're going to update this case because, uh, of course, everybody's been glued to that story over the last week um, as they finally solved this case. I'm not sure how well you sleep at night, but we are intrigued and we love this podcast. Third season is out of the Crime Beat podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Nancy, and much success. Can't wait to hear all the episodes coming our way. Thank you so much. And anybody who wants to listen, please uh, listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast from. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nancy. That's Nancy Hickst of Crime Beat.